0: This is part two of our conversation with Robert Augustus Masters. Master is a good name indeed for this man. He's a master psychotherapist and he has had a long journey and he has brought back a lot of wisdom and treasures for us along the path. So let's get into it and see you on the other end. God bless. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit
1: Robert, I want to I want to go back to the general topic of your book to be a man, because there's there's so many. There are, of course, the perennial issues we can understand about the issues of you know being uh, living fully and well as a man. Mm-hmm. And you certainly mentioned those: the emotional intimacy, the challenges with challenges with emotions. But we've also talked about pornography and the internet, which. Those addictions are, of course, new to us. There are there are new new kinds of drugs. So, there are, technology is presenting us with incredible opportunities and gifts. And yeah. I think all of us are alive. All three of us are alive because of medical, modern medical technology. And at the same time, it's presenting so many new challenges. Mm-hmm both direct challenges such as the internet and pornography and forthcoming virtual reality, but also the cultural aftershocks, et cetera, and the way that, that so much is changing in our ways of living and our ways of relating. What do you see as some of the unique challenges for men of our time? And what do you see as some of the emerging challenges? The book
2: title's sort of initiated that for me by saying to be a man it took a while for me and sounds true to come up with the title but it was to be a man so it made me what what is what is a healthy male what qualities are there and i i I talked about shame how to work with shame i just not throwing shame into the trash bin like some people do they say shame's bad i think shame has unhealthy dimension and a healthy dimension anger has the same anger can become aggression which is unhealthy or it can be heart-centered and it still has this passion it's
0: still there yeah and and robert it seems that you were a part of the men's movement right i mean just the work you do sounds like you were associated with that when that first started coming into consciousness or happening i think it was probably the mid 80s late 80s when it happened and i was i was in grad school i was in the bay area at that time and there were all these men's groups starting up and i was being the arrogant dummy that I can be sometimes. I was like, I was really close to my dad. I loved him very much. He was still alive then. And we'd hug and kiss each other and sit on the, you know, watch television arms around each other. You know, I I said, I got that. I don't need the father. And I'd been in the army and I, you know, I felt what it like, you know, to to, Mm -hmm. to bond with men and really love them as brothers. So I, so I kind of blew it off and I thought I didn't need that. I'd had my, you know, my masculine thing filled, And since I've been a little more beat up and broken, yeah. I, I think I've definitely changed my tune somewhat. And we're, we're in very interesting times. And a lot of on the, the far uh, left end of the spectrum where you have wokeism and yeah, yeah. Everybody, everybody's a victim except a white straight man. You know, and and I've always been very progressive. I was the youngest of, of three brothers. So I was the disenfranchised of the weak ones or I, I just appealed mm-hmm. to me. So very when I was four years old, I was listening to the adults talk about the civil rights movement. We were in Mexico, but there, you know, they were very you shouldn't have to let that guy in your restaurant if you don't want to. And all these kind of things that were people were struggling with. And I was like, no, you guys are wrong. Those guys are right. You know, so you always, you, you, you know, you grow up with racism, you become a racist. Well, I didn't for whatever reason I went with black people and Hispanics. Of course I grew up in Latin America and gays and just all of these, these groups. But now in, in the last couple of years, I've been wanting to be protective of white men, straight white men, because some of my best friends are straight white men, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I think it's just a bum rap and you have some little kid you know, as an alcoholic dad and a borderline mother, and you tell them, "Well, you're this privileged group, and you're, you know, all the all the awfulness of the world is on your shoulders." Well, that's certainly not fair. And one of my big all-time heroes, of course, is Dr. Martin Luther King. And that, that that maybe I'm paraphrasing this, but he says, "I hope there comes a time when my grandchildren will be judged by the content of their character." And not the color of their skin or their plumbing or their gender, but by the content of their character and their minds. Yes, And I feel like it's time that we, all right. Yes. If you go back far enough in all of our histories, our ancestors did awful things. Okay. I'm sure. I heard a a black man recently on, on YouTube and he said, man, I don't want to be blamed for my granddad did, but we seem to be wanting to put, you know, and, and, in a certain way yes we have to take responsibility for that yep. and in yeah. another way we don't so just yeah uh, how do you feel about that well the stakes
2: to are high. and t- go back to roger's question about what what challenges are for, there are for men now one of them is like is, is reclaiming our integrity of being getting in touch getting lined up so we're not we're not back and forth behind our forehead around different things we're not plain democrat versus republican we're going deeper. We're lining up. We're getting lined up. So we're not going left brain, right brain. We're going whole brain. And it's connected to our body, we're more embodied and we learn how to be in relationship. One of the main things I have in my men's is the men don't, a lot of them don't know how to be with women in a way that's really clean without cutting off their balls. I'll say, well, how can you keep your balls and reclaim your integrity? What do you do? You listen more, you have more, but you also can challenge you also don't get stuck in guilt spirals because you're white. It doesn't. It doesn't work. If, you, if if you and I are friends and you've hurt me in some way, and you're apologizing profusely and groveling before me, that's not what I need. I want you to be in relationship with me, not groveling and self-flagellating. And a lot of, I see a lot of people flagellating themselves as a way of virtue signaling. They're doing. They're overdoing that. Mm-hmm. I have people. My trainings. I have social justice warriors in there. They have shadow too. So I'm working with their shadow, which is often not to acknowledge they have shadow, et cetera. So it's, I think men have a huge challenge. I think a lot more men are showing up for work now to get lined up, not just to become softer men, more heart, but also to become more powerful where their anger is real, it's strong, they have balls, and they're safe. When women are around them in groups I do that are mixed groups, the women feel safe with men who are like that. Not the quiet ones are always nice and sweet, but the ones who can get angry, they're forceful, but they're vulnerable. That's a huge thing for most men is to get more vulnerable. Women have it down a little more than us in general. There's exceptions, of course, but to be more vulnerable. If I'm with my wife. I'm not vulnerable. She can read me so closely. Oh, split second! there you are. What are you really feeling, Robert? What's going on? You said that, and I like being busted. I've learned to like being busted by her and vice versa. We're really good for each other that way. Mutual transparency, but being vulnerable. Another gift from the five pathoxy. I was not very vulnerable before. I could be selectively vulnerable in certain situations, but afterwards, I felt more open consistently. I still have boundaries. If someone treats me badly, I don't just take it and assume that it's a great teaching. I will sometimes push back. No, it's not for me. Stop. Don't. So men have this huge invitation, but women too. There's a lot of women tend to, they they got as much work to do, in my view, as as men. It's in a different category. It's all about waking up and an embodied awakening. It includes shadow work, includes intimacy with all that we are. And the stakes are very, very high. We're at one hell of an edge as a species when I look around. One hell of an edge. And it's it's almost scary how easily it gets normalized. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but we, we still have to honor the strong masculine, you know the 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 person that's willing to give up his life for his family, for his children, for his people. Whether it's going, you know, waking up and going to work every day, or it's you know, uh, in, in a military or as a policeman or something. What's your
2: parallel with women? What would be the strong feminine
0: for you? Would be a woman that has developed a lot of her masculine side. Okay. And at the same time can be absolutely very feminine at the same time. So it's it's like Jung said, you know, there's this when we when we finally get it together, we balance the masculine with the feminine. And I would say it's the exact same thing for the
2: men. So you're talking about being being whole, being truly whole. Sure. Where all these different polarities work they work together, not in opposition. Yeah. And that's a big thing. That you can't just decide one day to do that. That's a that's a lot of work. It's also easy to be seduced by plateaus along the way, or we think, we think we've think we arrived, like I did way back when. When we haven't really arrived, we're just, we found a kind of com- comfortable zone to hang out in, but we haven't arrived. There's more to go. And for me, when I was younger, I thought, well, there has to be an end to this, it's the spiritual rungs, there's a realization of beyond realization, blah, blah, blah. That dropped from me a long time ago. And I feel like now I'm on a journey of endless discovery. And I'm not in a hurry to get to the end because I don't sense an end. I just sense there's an infinite number of possibilities before me. There's evolution has no real end to it to me. And I don't mind that. I like it. It's the mystery. Mystery Mm. abides.
1: Yeah. And that uh, feels like a really important juncture on the spiritual path of, of aiming for a specific State or experience or realization, yeah. with the assumption that that'll handle it all, to the recognition <laughs> that first nothing handles it all, and second, that as you said, it's endless mystery. And yeah. the beauty of that is not just endless mystery, but endless possibility of opening and and transformation. And we had the privilege of having a, a guest on uh, in our uh, recent dialog who hamid ali the founder of the yeah. diamond work and uh, ridwan school and i have to say he articulated more, better than anyone i've ever heard that crucial distinction between the uh, perspective that most spiritual paths have, that there is one particular state, realization, discovery, opening, Mm -hmm. that is the goal and the end. And basically, once you get there, the goal is to hang out, to stabilize it. And his perspective, which is, well, yes, there is that experience, that state, but there's also this one and that one and this tradition points to a particular Mm -hmm. realization. Mm -hmm. And Beyond even that, there's a possibility of each realization being a portal into further realizations. I agree. Uh, Yeah. And it gives a very different view of freedom because, in the traditional perspective of most powers, freedom lies in realizing and then stabilizing a particular state Mm. or realization. And in much more rarely one sees, and I think Hamid articulated articulate better than anyone I've ever run across. There's another kind of more encompassing and po- presumably more profound freedom, which is the capacity to be with any experience and to, yeah. and to recognize any experience as a full expression of reality, of the absolute, mm-hmm. of, of truth, etc. Yeah,
2: and implicit in that is not privileging the non dual over the dual. Yes. There's a problem I have with non-duality. I've worked with different teachers and that thing. I'll say, I, what I sense here, the differences are being homogenized. It doesn't feel right to me. There's not an honoring of individual differences and the profound impact we have as unique individuals.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: There's that. And I like what Hamid's saying. I mean, he, had, what My favorite book is called Runaway Realization.
1: Oh, mine too. Yes. It's
2: like, <laughs> wow, thanks for cutting loose. Like, this is it. People may not get it, but you're you're cutting loose now. You're not trying to just be a diamond heart teacher. You're going beyond that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we actually asked if we could focus on that in his subsequent book, uh, The Alchemy of Freedom in our in our dialogue. I think you'll enjoy it.
2: <laughs> and also I think the, the deepest freedom doesn't require you have a choice. I think the deepest freedom means you, you don't no longer have to have a choice. Like I don't feel like I have a choice to write or to work with people the way I do. It's just that it's in my blood. It's a given. Yeah. I don't do it to make money. I do it because I I love it. I've been loving it ever since I started writing and working with people.
1: And and we probably need to be careful and and discerning here because not having a choice feels like a lot could could be interpreted as a lack of freedom or a loss of freedom. Exactly. And I think what you're pointing to is more the recognition. This is my unique way of being. This is my calling. This is my Dharma. And there is delight in simply flowing with it. Does that feel right?
2: Yeah, it does. And also it's like there's a consideration. What is choice exactly? It's a philosophical thing. What is choice? What's the anatomy of choice? Who's doing the choosing? My conditioning? Me? And then we end up in mystery again.
1: (laughs) Funny how we uh, keep ending up there, (laughs) isn't it?
2: (laughs) Well, everywhere. <laughs>
1: sure. Well, Robert, I want to go back to back to a previous question I raised, and that is we is that we talked a little about what are some of the unique challenges of our time that men face, and if there's more you have to say about that, I'd love to hear it. But also, what are some of the emerging challenges that you see?
2: I think a lot of it is to do with uh, integrity. Mm-hmm. To, have,
1: to, have, to, have,
2: to have more integrity. And to discover, to learn what that is and to be lined up internally so that you are not s- seducible by the usual pulls. You're not seducible sexually, you're not seducible intellectually. You're also not rigidly trying to be yourself, but you're, you're, there's, a, there's a sense of alignment internally. So you're not going to be, you cannot be swayed unless it's for a really good reason and you flow with that. And that's that's growing up, that's becoming more mature. I mean, I do the men's group sometimes. I love it when I have guys in their 70s in the group and I have guys in their 20s. That's I love seeing the, 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 the two age groups see each other and see each other do their work and celebrate that and that sense the evolution is possible. I think it's also to do with the relationship. I mean, I think a lot of men have, have not entered relationship deeply. Superficial, it's too sexually oriented. They haven't gone really deep with a partner. And I think my, my, I think the deepest growth I've ever had is from being with my wife. It's the easiest relationship right from the beginning. And yet it's been the most challenging because there's so such transparency and vulnerability. So I, I've grown more from being with her than from anything else, including my five methoxy. It's just like, this is it. So I often promote intimate relationship as a path of awakening for those that are willing to do the work.
1: It's a lot. And not so emphasized traditionally in in traditional contemplative practice, the relationship was primarily centered either oriented towards God or guru. And and there really wasn't so much on peer relationship as a path. And yet that's one of the things you've been laying out and emphasizing just how profoundly valuable it can be. And I, (laughs) I think it was the advanced yoga after you've spent a year or so in retreat, done <laughs> <laughs> done a few years of practice and therapy, then yeah. <laughs> then uh, maybe it can handle a really intimate relationship. I well, exaggerated. I've,
2: I've called intimate relationship the ashram of the twenty first century. It, right. It can be many people glorify that and they they don't do the work that's required. They don't outgrow their reactivity, etc. But it's sitting there, and I I'm I'm living in it and I love it. Even though it's going to be very painful, if she dies before me, it's like, so what? That's that's what happens. I, I welcome the devastation and nonsense.
0: Yeah, yeah. Roger and, and I don't know. People know, but you lost your your life partner uh, of many years and a highly respected uh, a woman just a few years ago, and that's kind of when we met. And and I know, I mean, she's not around physically anymore as she was. But how does that Continue on with the grief, the loss, the change, but those years together—how does that that continue to resonate in your life?
1: Well, that's a large, large question, uh-huh. and and of course, it was such a powerful and gifted relationship that she really was a very, very remarkable and wise woman. That it was, as Robert was saying, a. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, a very a very uh, powerful practice in fact as mm-hmm. powerful as any i have done and, and of course uh, i think she her teachings and inspiration and feedback etc live on in, in my life yeah. and i think forever i will be touched mm. by her and in uh, partly a, a gifted by and a product of her yeah. and her many extraordinary yeah. qualities so, do you still talk to her i don't no, that's, uh, people have asked that, but I, I don't really. Sometimes I ask, you know, if kind of in a guidance, but I don't yeah. have a sense of communication with her.
2: Do you feel a communion with her?
1: I, I'd have to explore what you mean by communion. Yeah,
2: connection, non-physical uh, connection.
1: Not so much. Uh, a number of people seem to expect that I would, given how remarkable the relationship was. But mm. its uh, I, I can't say I, I do. It's like, yeah, she's gone. So, yeah.
2: yeah. Do you miss her?
1: Um. Let's see. Well, of course, there was enormous grief when she died. She died oh. very suddenly. We went out yeah. to... Dinner with some friends, and five minutes after we got there, she complained of chest pain, and five hours later, she was dead. So, wow. so there was a great grief, and that, of course, as you described, was an enormous learning. Because, yeah. and I'm so grateful for spiritual practice and spiritual tools. It's like mm. made an enormous difference, and I know I got away much lighter than most people do with grief, just by yeah Yeah. There's one person who came to see me 24, 24 hours after she died said, you don't seem surprised. And I said, I'm not surprised. I knew this would happen or I'd go first, but I'm shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, so so in many ways, I was fortunate in having a lot of tools to work with and having, having some, as much as one can, prepared for this. So.
2: Yeah. well My wife and I, we talk about this quite often because, you know, she's got breast cancer now. I've, mm. I've had prostate cancer since 2008, had the heart attack. So we are we look healthy, we feel healthy, but we're vulnerable. So we talk about this, what it would be like for the one that's left, what do we want to do at, you know, when the person dies? And we look at it, we feel it. Sometimes it's very sad. Other times it's, it's very expansive. Something we go into that zone where something is just mystery, looking at it, mystery, looking at itself. No escape from feeling in that, but just simply depth, more depth. And no matter what happens, I know i will be profoundly grateful. I'll be devastated in the way, but I'll be very grateful to have had that time with her,
0: yes. yeah.
2: have a true partnership. And she worked with me side by side for many years. And then six years ago, she had to retire from it. It was just too much for her being around all that emotional pain, trauma. She needed to take a break. And she's returning to her other love, which is music as a singer, songwriter. And I continue on because it's. I, I love doing this. I'll probably do it till I'm really, really old. I have a friend in Canada who's 86 who's still doing this full time, and I may be following down the same path. I don't know. Are you still? Are you still working with people?
1: Well, yes, but more in more in uh spiritual context than psychotherapeutic at this at this stage. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yes, I. Privilege. I, you know, re- retirement has no appeal <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're so privileged to be able to do meaningful work and can make contributions. So, so yeah, it's a gift. Yeah. Um, very rich. Very rich. I want to touch back into something you just touched on, and that was pointing to the precipice we are on as a species, and mm-hmm. and just ask. We, it's a kind of open-ended question about if, if there is something you'd like to say about that, uh, open into.
2: I think the first thing is there, I wish more people were aware we're at that edge. You don't need to have climate. You know, things have to, have to get a lot worse. Like most people doing really deep work. I find if they're suffering enough, they'll go, they'll go to the edge. If they're not suffering that much, they have a harder time going to the edge. I think as a species where there's a lot of denial, I, when I go to the gym now, I'm just thinking of this. I'm in there working out. I like doing weightlifting stuff. But I do, I'm aware, I'm breathing, I'm doing it. But most people around me are like this. They're on their phone almost the whole time. And somebody's around, I have to ask them, excuse me, can I step in here? I want to use this machine. And they have to get off their phone. They're texting, they're scrolling. I know
0: that one well, yeah.
2: And that, and that, that, that does irritate me. Like, can't you? there's so much going on right now i understand the human need to numb ourselves to to crises potential crises but if there was a time for waking up this is it
1: and do you see this you work very deeply particularly with men but also with women do you do you see this how do you see this this existential crisis we're facing confronting men and, and women, men today.
2: I think it's going to probably get worse before it gets better. And I mm-hmm. also think groups, I'm doing my trainings with men and women. I bring this up fairly often and we don't try and figure it out. It's more like just feel it, feel what's going on. Think, don't numb yourself. I had a guy from the Ukraine in a group recently and he cried his guts out over what was going on when he was given a chance. Shifted the whole, the whole group. It was so important. But the more that's needed where we grieve together, we feel it like here's the edge. I mean, I live in a very privileged part of the country. I mean, it's very peaceful here. There's no, no fires, no hurricanes. It's very peaceful. But I know not far away from here, there's a lot of trouble. And I think all we can do is use that as a, as a catalyst for deepening our, our awakening become aware, more aware of shadow because an unresolved unres- shadow elements run us until we are aware of them. They just run us. And I see the planet being run by a lot of leaders. Shadow is running the, running the program without any awareness. And how do, you, how do you inspire people on that scale to do that? I gave up on that. I'm not meant to go on giant stages and do that. I do it with small groups at a time. I'm having an impact, but it's, I only can take a certain number of people at a time and do the appropriately deep work with them in that. So on one hand, it's kind of hopeless. The other hand, I have I an have f- abiding faith in, in life continuing. I know that I am, life outlives me, but I also am life. That, that helps me. And we're, all, we're at this edge. And I really feel grief for the upcoming generations. Our grandchildren, like, wow, what are they, they going to be living in? Probably something not as privileged and pleasant as this. Well, who, although who knows? I don't know for sure, of course.
1: And do you see this, an awareness of the existential crisis and the emotional impact of that coming up in as you invite men to do yes. deep work?
2: I see more and more people having it in their dreams. Mm-hmm. I'm, and I, one thing I teach people is how to work with nightmares. Like instead of trying to leave the nightmare... Many, many people want them. When they realize it's a nightmare. They want to get the hell out of there. I'll say, what? Well, Learn to practice staying in the nightmare. You're conscious in the nightmare. If you want, you can change your body. Lucid dreaming. You can fly. You could do something, but stay stay there. You're so close to the, having a clear view of your own trauma and collective trauma. So it's a bit like my work is to help people get closer to what they'd rather not be close to. Mm-hmm. Here's the edge. Here's the pain. It's not very popular, but I'm, I want you to move towards this. I'll show you how, step by step, not too fast, not too slow. I know, without turn, facing our pain, we're, we're, we're just absolutely seducible by all the distractions from it. Hmm. And that's 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 you know, electronic addiction, biochemical addiction. There's so much of it around. So much suffering,
1: hmm. and and so much of. Healing work and growth work, both psychological and spiritual, comes from that willingness to open to those experiences we've previously avoided. In exactly. fact, one could say that that is perhaps the core of psychotherapy.
2: That's that's it in a, in a nutshell, isn't it? Turning toward what we normally would turn away from.
0: Yeah, and I had a, I had a when you were telling your story about you know, where you were and then having this DMT, like, catastrophe, and how that came out. I was thinking that or feeling that that's, in a personal way, probably what's going to happen to us as a species. You know, things are going to get so bad and just so awful and so catastrophic that it looks like the end has come. But yet out of that, will we'll become a species that and largely has been reborn in, in good ways. Yeah. Maybe not as arrogant and, you know, technologically sophisticated, but something will shift. And we talked to Chris Baish, Dr. Christopher Beige here, and he had written a book called LSD and the Mind of the Universe. And over a 10-year period, he did 73 very high-dose high controlled LSD experiences. And he was just given an amazing amount of teaching. And finally, he said, by the way, it's not for you. You need to write this. And it took him another 10 years to write it. I don't know anybody could handle it as well as he did. He's a very humble and learned man, and he was able to come back. But one of the things he said, yeah, that, that what seemed to be coming through is that things were going to get a lot worse, but ultimately it was going to be very good. Well, implicit in that is the fact that people often,
2: worst circumstances often bring out the best in at least some people. Not everyone, a lot of people brings out the best, like heavy wartime.
1: And and one of the challenges of our time, Robert, is clearly going to be, as the challenges mount, finding and and making available to people those perspectives and practices which help transform challenges into opportunities. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, under stress, most people automatically regress. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the default reaction. We become more egocentric, more tunnel vision, short-term thinking about me, etc., survival. And yet, as you point out, there's clearly a possibility, given the right conditions for people to step forward and expand to meet the challenge and to lead Mm -hmm. others in doing so.
2: You know, I see it. I was just thinking of my shorter groups. I do three-day groups for men and women. There are only six people allowed in. They always form a community, even though I no longer am interested in community. Given my early experiences, I'm just not drawn to doing that anymore. They all six strangers always form a community over in the first day, and after the end of three days, they're, they're close friends. They want to stay in touch. There's that human sense of community when there's when there's permission to be yourself and to show that your full self. And a lot of them will say they don't have that outside of the group like that. They don't have that in their life with their husband, their wife, their kids. But they sense, oh, here's what it is to be plugged in and doing it through a group consciousness as well as, as an individuated consciousness. But I used to try and do this on a big scale. It didn't work. I found my groups have gotten smaller and smaller. So everyone gets full attention. No one gets left out.
1: And isn't it a tragedy that so many people will say after coming into therapy or, or deep group experience, such as you're describing, this is the most intimate relationship I've had?
2: Yeah. And they're very sad at the end So I think, well, what am I going to do now? And say, well, why don't you stay in touch with the others and try and bring this into your life more. So all I can do is plant the seed. Some people take it. Other people go back to the old habits. And I, I've mm-hmm. learned to let like go of my attachment that they will hang in there and turn the corner. Even though I will say, when I see someone staying with the work long enough, they will turn the corner and not be able to go back. They're no longer a caterpillar. They've got their wings now, but they have to hang in there. Yeah. And that takes, that takes an existential
1: courage. Yes, and I've never been able to figure out why it is that certain people take various growth steps. For example, why, why some people even begin to develop an interest in psychological and spiritual growth. Why some people go into therapy or take up a practice, and why people's some people uh, persist with it while others don't, and while why others really dive deep—it's it's been a mystery to me.
2: It is a mystery. We can attribute it. We can talk about past lives, karma, but that—that's just that doesn't really help very much. It's more mm. some people are more ready. Like if I have five, four siblings, I'm the only one that's taken this jump. I took it when I was young in my 20s. The others haven't taken the jump. They're not interested. They think I'm crazy
0: or not interested. You know, Hamid was talking about that in his book and in our conversation about that activation, you know, when some, you know, the, the cocoon starts to open up and that almost everybody on the path at some point has this, sometimes when they're very young, in my case, I was I think it was 11 when I had my first big experience of God. And when was that for you, Robert? Can you, can you point your finger to I, was. Had it as a very, I had it as a very
2: young child. I was wide, wide open. But I was in an abusive household, so I, I learned to f- I adapt to that by the time I was three or four. And my adolescence was a desert. Nothing happened. And then I was 21. I was doing a PhD in biochemistry, and someone said, you want to try some mescaline? I said, okay. I had mescaline. I sat for hours looking at the flowers, and I felt my whole being expand. I felt plugged into who I was as a little boy. That was my first real awakening. And I had a lot of awakenings during lucid dreaming. And I had awakenings. I went to the Rajneesh Ashram when it was a long, long time ago. I had a huge awakening there, even though I did not like being there very much. But I had those moments of just, ah, oh, here's who I am. Here's this. But I was driven. When I first had my first therapeutic experience, I said, I want to do more of this. I'm interested. I want to know more about body work, psychotherapy, how to incorporate spirituality into psychotherapy. I was so curious. And many people I knew around me didn't have the curiosity. And even being around me, some of them picked up got a contact high for me, they'd try it for a little bit, but it wasn't in their bones to do it. Whereas I would do it no matter where I was. My problem was when I was younger, I assumed I'd arrived well before I had. I thought I was the top of the mountain. I was actually just the just the base
1: camp at the bottom. I thought I was the peak. <laughs> are any of us beyond base camp? <laughs> yeah.
2: Ruth to Robert, come on, wake up here.
1: Yeah. Uh, Robert, this has been, this has been uh, such a delightful, delightful conversation. And I, mm-hmm. like John, I just appreciate your openness and vulnerability and, and authenticity. It's very beautiful. Is there anything you'd like to say or discuss before we kind of move towards closure?
0: I have one more question before we get to that point. And I would be remiss not to ask this question. And Heidi always reminds me to do this. Oh, yeah. And practice, transformational practice has been a huge part of my life and work for a long time now. So I I would ask you at this point in your life, what is your practice? What does that look like?
2: Being as intimate as possible
0: with all that I am, all that I am, all that I am. And I have, I I don't
2: meditate formally anymore. Mm -hmm. I do short prayers before I work. I actually I work out a lot, just paying attention and being staying completely transparent, open to my wife. We're around each other a lot. That's my practice. Now and then I like to sit for a long time or two. In, but I like, I don't need the, like the younger man, I don't do retreats anymore. And I and the other practice is, is attuning to my mortality. And implicit in which is a statement, that just comes to me now. Releasing all that I took and take to be mine. That's a gradual process. Like I'm no longer concerned about plagiarism. Other authors want to quote me. You don't have to even quote me. Just use whatever you want. Take it. I mean, it came through me. It's my book. My name's on it, but I, I don't feel the same degree of mine, me. It's fading naturally as I get older. I turn 75 in a few months. so. And I have to say, my favorite decade is my 70s, by far.
1: Beautiful. And as someone who uh, still is deeply drawn to meditation, I hesitate to use the word addicted, but, uh, <laughs> but attached, certainly. Attached. That's a more socially <laughs> acceptable
0: term. There yeah. are worse addictions.
1: Uh. Uh, I'd be intrigued to hear what the shift has been for you that, that no longer draws you. Well, I did a lot of it when I was in the 70s, early 80s. I did Vipassana
2: courses, was the, did Rajneesh stuff, did all that. And I felt the need of it slip as I became more meditative naturally during the day.
1: Mm-hmm. Not like I'm
2: constantly in it, but I'm, I'm every, every hour, half, hour, 15 minutes, I'm plugging in. I wear my breathing. If I'm not doing like a chunk a day, then the rest of the day is different. It's like it's, it's consistent. And when I feel need to go really deep, I'll just lay very still, drop in. Well, the other practice I have once here, this is a little not quite as serious. I get out of bed and I do a plank. <laughs> you ever done a plank? Hmm. I hate I hate them. I used to. I just want to quit as soon as I've done fifteen seconds. I'm I'm working that's, on my that's a long time. It's not easy. I'm working my way up to five minutes. I'm over four minutes now, and I'm shaking like a leaf doing it. <laughs> But it's a discipline. It's an odd thing, and it's quick.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, just being present. Just being present feels really good.
1: Being present. Yep. Well, the here now, as Ramdas. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and I really enjoyed this too, because you're you're both so present. So I mean, it was a it wasn't an interview. It was a lovely to have the
1: conversation. Uh, well, it's, uh, yes, it's a beautiful conversation indeed. Yeah, uh, and and that's. That's what we hope for, and that's what is, is a delight to meet mm. and to dialogue and to co explore together. Mm. As, Have you known um, John for very long? Well, let's see, about uh, six years, I think. Something uh, like
0: that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was amazing for me to become a friend with Roger because I really admired him and his work and his books and stuff. And then we became friends. And this is this deep transformationist thing that we do has been such an incredible blessing for me. It's really helped me. And to be able to experience it with Roger, Bennett, yeah, I've always respected since I've heard of him, but I've grown to really love and to participate in these experiences. Yeah, it's been—it just means very much to me. And
2: uh, well, you're a great—you're a great team. I felt extremely at ease, comfortable the
0: whole time, even though we started off with a topic that's a little tricky for me. But let's just dive in. It's like I didn't know if you're going to say turn the machine off or whatever, but you—you you were so gracious and so so open. It's it's a tremendous, tremendous blessing. And I hope more people read that part of your life because a lot of people need to read it and hear that. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Particularly at this at this time when when the DMT psychedelics are becoming, becoming very, very fashionable. fashionable yeah. Very fashionable, yes, for better and for worse. Robert, anything you'd like to add before we come to a no. close. I no, feel done. I feel
2: done in a good way. I'm, I'm
1: well cooked. <laughs> well cooked. Well, well. For my part, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your life's work. Thank you for being going through the fire and being willing to really, uh, really just open to the fullness of your humanity and your experience and the way you have. It's an inspiration. I've I feel touched. By you and what you do what you've done and are doing so thank you
0: thank you and it makes me look forward to my 70s how old are you john i'm 65
2: okay getting closer
0: i think i'm 66 actually sorry about that
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well thank you very much okay, you
0: both of you. Thank okay. You. awesome thank you, thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John Roger and the Deep Transformation Team.